It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you, as always, the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis into everything you're talking about with us in the beautiful game. I'm Ian McGarry and with me is Duncan Castles, the transfer guru, as he is known throughout the globe. And uh, what a very, very dramatic last few days we've had in the conclusions so far of both the Champions League and Europa League campaigns being played in Lisbon and Germany, respectively. Exits for all of the English Premier League clubs in both competitions. We have two French and two German clubs in the semi-finals of Champions League. But perhaps, and maybe not even perhaps, I think we can all agree that definitely the most sensational result, as well as the consequences which have followed, was Barcelona's 8-2 defeat to Bayern Munich. Today it's expected that Ronald Koeman will be confirmed as Kiki Setien's successor at Camp Nou. We asked the question though, not just where next for Barcelona given the crisis that they're in, and we have spoken about this at length on the podcast over the past two to three months, but what next for Leo Messi, Duncan? Because you've had a briefing and information from the club and those close to it today, which suggests that Messi's role at the club and indeed his influence may not be in the future or it has been in the immediate past. Yeah, I think all of this has been a long time coming. Um, I think if you, you can go back to the podcast we did with, with Graham Hunter um, on a lot of it on Barcelona and the, what we talked about, the civil war at Barcelona. Um, and I think you'll you'll see it predicted there that uh, and Graham talking in detail about the issues at Barcelona, the problems with the team, the problems with an aging squad, um, with a manager who who wasn't capable of handling that situation, of Messi's massive importance within the club, not just on the field, but in determining. Um, when managers got kicked out, who came in as a replacement, which players they should pursue. And I think what we have seen in the last couple of days with the decision to go for Koeman as a replacement, um, obviously there was an attempt to get Xavi, something we've talked about in the podcast before. And there is a, a belief that Xavi will be coach of Barcelona before too long, but possibly with a new um, president in charge and, and another of the things that have happened in the last few days is that the current um, regime has brought the elections, presidential elections forward to March next year as a kind of sop to the fans over their their complaints about the handling and the running of the club and we've even seen Gerard Piquet after that Bayern Munich defeat talk about the club um, needing to change and, and saying I'm not talking at the level of the coach 
or the players, but structurally the club needs changes of all kinds. So very much putting direct pressure on the on the board uh, and laying um, some of the blame for these uh, catalogue of heavy defeats in, in Champions League knockout round games at the board. Um, so Xavi wasn't available and Xavi will wait Again, something we talked about in the podcast until the conditions are such that he gets the strongest entry into the club and the power to change things. But they then go for Koeman and um, the guidance I've had is that Koeman is there because they wanted, with Xavi unavailable, a tough manager, someone who would be hard on the dressing room and enable them to make tough decisions about the squad. They feel they have to clear out a number of the senior players. Um, some of the names mentioned to me, Luis Suarez, Jordi Alba, Arturo Vidal. Um, they feel all of those players have to go. And not coincidentally, all of those players are close to Messi. So there is um, friction involved in making those changes to the squad. And their position on Messi I'm told it's not that they are actively um, trying to get him to leave the club and that they feel that part of the change should be a change of this this individual has become so important, probably more important than any footballer in the history of the game in terms of his, his pivotal place in the club and that not just his qualities on the field, but his ability to influence the direction of the club and to influence decisions that can be calculated in hundreds of millions of euros when you add transfer fees and and, uh, values of of contract in. But guidance I have is that they are not um, in the business anymore of following Messi's wishes when it comes to running the club. They feel that uh, trying to appease him and making changes to management and making changes to the squad on the basis of what he would like to happen has contributed to the position they're in now and they feel that has to stop. Um, they won't say it's time to go, but I'm told they also will not say, um, please stay at the club, we give you anything and everything you want to stay here, which is essentially what they've done, uh, particularly over his current contract, contract that runs out in 2021. Um, they basically had to give him the richest contract in the history of football, exactly as he demanded. In fact, I'm told the negotiation process, and that was his father and his representative saying to Barcelona, this is what we require to stay, and there is no negotiation you either, you either uh, uh, adhere to our terms and give us this money, which also included a massive signing on contract and a clause which allowed him to walk away um, at, at the end of each year in May, should he choose to do so. Um, and left themselves in the position they're in now. Um, from Messi's side, we've seen some reporting that he has decided that he wants out of the club and he wants a significant change in his career. Guidance I have is that actually he's stayed quiet. Um, He's not been in communication with anyone. He's very much holding his counsel. Um, Suggested to me that Messi has, they they describe him as having hot blood. He, he, He responds to these kind of situations with anger and often makes quite abrupt decisions. And note that he's twice... Uh, resigned from 
the, the Argentina national team after bad results on the international stage. And, and uh, the, the interpretation is that the people close to him are, are asking him to wait and consider and take his time before communicating um, either off record or in private conversations and on record as to what he wants to do. So Barcelona are waiting for that. People around him are waiting for that. But you, you've certainly got a situation where you can see quite radical changes happening at Barcelona. Um, in fact, I would, <laughs> the guidance I had was to expect a lot of surprises in the coming week, um, basically because this has got to a an inflection point where I think everyone is under pressure. The board are under pressure. Bartomeu obviously steps down as president when these new elections come, but he wants one of his um, camp to succeed him. Um, the players have, several of them have talked about how radical changes have to be made. Messi, of course, had said earlier in the, the season, uh, talking about their lack of success in the La Liga and defeats to weaker sides that they they were losing because they, the opponents, show more intensity and hunger than us. Um, the question is exactly how it gets resolved. And you add on to this the, the very significant financial pressure that Barcelona are under, um, would have been under regardless of COVID, but intensified by COVID and their attempts to shift out players who they've wasted money on in the past. Um, while refreshing that squad and bringing in players who are capable of playing the kind of football that their support demands them to play. Um, it's not just about winning again. It's about winning in the right fashion. So it's extremely complex and I think very unpredictable as to how it goes from here. I saw it reported, Duncan, um, uh, late last week that it's reckoned Barcelona have spent just under a billion euros on player uh, transfer fees since 2014. And in that time, obviously, have failed to win the Champions League. They have obviously won the Liga title and also this, um, Copa del Rey. But for such an incredible outlay, that does not count as uh, a credible return. Now, Messi in that time has put himself in the position, and you'd have to say, with some justification, of being probably the only genuine, untouchable player in world football. And by that, I mean, if fit, always plays, uh, as you have detailed, um, has an influence in choosing managers, or, and, and by that I mean sacking managers, well, recruiting new ones. We know that he has he's had influences in team selections as well, and tactics, and that he has been very vocal in making his voice heard in terms of the way the team should play and is set up. Now, he appears to me to be a person who, whether it's his fault or not, um, has a very strong sense of entitlement as a result of that untouchable status. How do we think he's going to respond to uh, a new way of working at Barcelona whereby he's not consulted or his voice isn't being heard or his his opinions are not being acted upon. I mean, there is a real possibility. He just throws the toys out of the pram and says, that's it, I'm off. 
It'll certainly be a, a, a very significant change for him if Barcelona adhere to what they say they want to do, which is uh, we're not going to run the club according to his wishes anymore. Um, can he leave the club? Yeah, obviously he can leave the club. He's out of contract in a year's time. Uh, he can force the issue whenever he likes. Um, but what do we know about Messi? He loves living in Barcelona. He loves his life in Spain. He is not someone who, apart from what he does on the football pitch, likes living uh, in in the media and being at the forefront of things. And, and I think this is part of the problem he has in his in his situation that has developed at Barcelona where he is hugely influential in the running of the club but doesn't actually want to be the figurehead doesn't want to be in in the in front of the cameras explaining the team's decisions it, it's very much i think uh, a situation where he wants the club run or he wants he wants the team to succeed. He wants to win the Champions League again at Barcelona. There's a huge frustration over the failure to do that. He has his ideas about who should be in the team and the way the team should be played, and his ideas are listened to. But he's not a manager. He's not a director of football. His, his genius is as a footballer, and you, I think it's very much uh, something new to that's a result of the importance of players like Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo, the amount of money they create for their clubs, the, the level their salaries have gone up to, that they have this unprecedented influence over uh, the operation of their clubs. And are they capable of handling that level of influence um, when they don't actually have the responsibility of making the day-to-day -day decisions and don't want the responsibility of making the day-to-day -day decisions? And then what is the outcome? Well, we've seen what the outcome is in Barcelona and there are lots of other contributing factors. This is not purely down to Messi. This is bad decision-making by lots of people. This is a team which was brilliant, aging and unable to play the football it used to play anymore. A support that expects them to play that football aren't satisfied if they don't see it. Um, when a coach like Valverde comes in and changes and, and operates more pragmatically, that isn't popular. Therefore, he gets shifted out. They move to someone like Setien, who has a reputation for playing beautiful football, and the results get even worse. Um, there are so many problematic factors there. Will Messi say, I've had enough of this, um, I go elsewhere? Well, I think you have to balance in how comfortable he is in Barcelona, his reluctance to leave the place. And you also have to ask, where does he go? Um, how much does he want to move to another club? Does he want to go and play in the Premier League um, where there probably is the cash available uh, to sign him and pay his wages? But does he want to switch to another league, um, another team, another surroundings? and prove himself again because remember there is this and, and I think this will remain until he tries to go to another league if he ever does so there's this question about does he have to be surrounded by a team designed for him playing the kind of football he wants to get the best out of his qualities um We've seen with Argentina that failure to win trophies. It's the same Lionel Messi at Argentina as it is with Barcelona, but he's not all dominant. 
because uh, on for many of those occasions when he's played for Argentina, it hasn't been shaped around him. Now he takes the risk if he moves to um, an English club or an Italian club, and or Paris Saint Germain, for example. You could see potentially looking at, at a player like Messi. If he moves to those clubs and it doesn't work for him, what does that do for his status in the game? Where does that does that bring him the enjoyment that he's missing by not winning the Champions League? Um, there, there, there's big risk involved in all of this, and he is not temperamentally. He's very different from Cristiano Ronaldo, who is and has been prepared to make those big jumps um, to pursue the goals in his career and who has long held an ambition and has stated this himself that he wants to play until he's 40 and wants to um, not only be recognised as the greatest footballer of all time, he wants to be recognised as the greatest sportsman of all time and is, has been running his career and looking after his body in a way he can achieve that for years. Contrast with that with Messi, who I think last year, upon um, winning one of his World Player of the Year awards, gave an interview talking about how it gets harder for him each year physically to remain at the same level and, and, and talking about wondering how long he would be able to continue at this level for. He's in a very different situation from Ronaldo and whatever he decides to do now, and, and there's no question, it's in his mandate to choose whether he wants to remain at Bar Barcelona or whether he wants to, to move his career elsewhere. Um, he, that will be part of his consideration as to is there actually a place where the grass is greener than Camp Nou? Well, the image of him uh, captured uh, and then it was published on social media of him, Messi, that is, sitting in the Barcelona dressing room uh, during the Bayern Munich game, looking completely dejected. I mean, to be fair, his body language on the pitch wasn't much better. Um, notably, he was simply walking back into his own half on several occasions when Bayern were counter-attacking. Uh, not really the actions of a captain who's taking responsibility and trying to motivate his team to uh, improve on, at that point, what was 4-1 uh, before the eventual result uh, transpired. But uh, but you're right, Duncan. I'm not sure where else he'll be given planning permission to build a four-storey ball-shaped uh, mansion, uh, which he has done on the outskirts of Barcelona, and also lobby uh, the town's mayor to ensure that the flight patterns are changed so that his peace and quiet is not disturbed <laughs> by uh, by f flights coming in to Barcelona airport. And now you can hear Jimmy in the background agreeing with me there, uh, barking away. From uh, Messi, we go to his old boss, who, of course, with whom he won two Champions Leagues. Pep Guardiola and his failure now in four attempts to get past the quarterfinals or indeed the last 16 uh, with uh, the Etihad club. And I think it's fair to say, Duncan, that while it wasn't necessarily a huge shock given the scoreline of 3-1, what was a shock was Guardiola's team selection, the way he had decided to change tactics. Um, I spoke to two separate sources who are close to the dressing room at Manchester City and they expressed to me the um, dismay of some players 
when they were told the team selection and that it was felt very much that in not playing Bernardo Silva, David Silva in particular, City's probably most two creative players and two game breakers. Um, then City effectively went out with one arm tied behind their back or two feet tied together, whichever way you want to put it. And even Riyad Mahrez, of course, also started on the bench. Now, I know from experience of 20 years working with players that if you select a team that your players don't necessarily believe in and they think they're disadvantaged, then they go out thinking that and therefore their mentality is all wrong uh, going into a game. Now, never mind the quarterfinal of a Champions League tournament, which is one leg, winner takes all in terms of getting to the semi-finals. It seems like Guardiola overcomplicates his his uh, approach to Champions League game. We saw him do it against Liverpool um, before this. It's almost like he's trying to be too clever. They're rather just allowing his team to play the way he knows they can play and in which they, generally speaking, uh, are capable of beating anyone over 96, 120 minutes. Well, the Champions League's a higher level. And I think it's been interesting watching the this these finals in Portugal. I think it's the first time since we've had closed doors, ghost game, COVID football that I've watched matches and, and thought afterwards, this is proper football. I'm not missing anything in terms of the quality on the pitch and the intensity with which the games are being played. I didn't feel that at all when I watched the Premier League matches. Uh, I remember when we had Uwe Hunemeyer on the podcast um, before the Premier League restarted, he suggested to us that there would be an issue in English football because the crowd was so important um, to the way the game was played and that you would not see the same quality. Um, when it returned, and, and I think his prediction has proved to be correct. And I, and I was kind of pleasantly surprised watching these matches and coming away thinking, yeah, that's, that is no different in terms of what's happening on the pitch uh, from what I would have seen last season. It's the highest level of football. It's technically superb. It's tactically very clever. There aren't many mistakes going on. It, it's just... It's proper high-level football again. Guardiola knows it's high-level football because he's been failing in it for years now. Um, his reputation was built on what he did at Barcelona. He won Champions Leagues quickly, won almost everything quickly there, was hired by Bayern Munich to win the Champions League. And then, unfortunately for him, they won it after he'd signed the contract and he came into a team which wasn't waiting to win the Champions League for, for years again, but had already demonstrated they could win it. He couldn't repeat the feat. He was hired by Abu Dhabi, richest contract ever um, in world football to win the Champions League, to, to allow that nation state to get hold of Europe's Premier Club trophy ahead of Qatar and PSG. Um, he has had the best setup any manager has ever had. They, they hired their chief executive, Ferran Soriano, and their director of football, Chiki Bergiristan, to build the club in a, in a way that would convince Guardiola to come. 
Um, he's had more money spent on the team than any manager ever. They have rebuilt the training ground um, according to his demands, changed the way the academy has been set up according to his demands. He couldn't have had more. And he knew that when he took the job. He had the option to go to any top club in England. And he specifically chose Manchester City because he thought the conditions would be better. And because there would be less expectation on him, he could go to Manchester United, for example, and win the Champions League there. And it would be, well, we won the Champions League not that long ago. That's what we expect at Manchester United. Remember, this is the old Manchester United, not the current Manchester United, where um, qualifying for the Champions League is regarded as a massive achievement in the words of the manager. But where Manchester United were when they were offering him the job, when Sir Alex Ferguson was trying to convince him to come, he knew that repeating what he'd done at Barcelona or something similar to what he'd done at Barcelona would be expected and, and not seen as special. Uh, and the demands on him would be greater. He chose Manchester City because he felt it was the easiest place to succeed. And as you say, he's had four attempts at this tournament now. He gets knocked out in the last 16 by Monaco with a significant league going into the away leg chooses in that game to uh, play attacking football, play his normal game um, when he had issues with personnel uh, and when Monaco were perfectly set up to, to beat um, Manchester City on the counter. So he made a massive tactical mistake in that game, which cost him place in the quarterfinals. Um, the Liverpool defeat changed the system uh, as you, as you say, because he was worried about the way the Liverpool play, basically destroyed his own team. You remember being in that game and watching and thinking, this is completely different Manchester City. The players are trying to dribble past opponents because they don't have their partners in their usual places in the field. And they don't have that standard system where they know where each person is going to be and they pass one touch or two touch through the opponents. Um, they've, they've been reduced to uh, trying to beat Liverpool according to their, their individual talent. And we saw what happened. They fell apart, they lose 3-0, they're out. Tottenham, again, a team he should be beating, fails to do it. And then Olympic Lyon, okay, as we said before the podcast, the French teams have an advantage in these finals because they've had lots, they've had a break, they've been able to prepare specifically for them. But they finished seventh in Ligue 1 last season. Um, they have to win the Champions League to get back into the competition next year. They're a good side. And they had, again, as I pointed out in the podcast last season, they beat Manchester City and drew with them in the group stages, which would, be, would have played in Guardiola's mind. Um, but... Nine times out of ten, you expect Manchester City playing their standard system with the higher quality of players that they have to beat Leon in a one-off Champions League tie. He decides to go for three central defenders, worried about the way um, Leon attack on the counter and the pace of their, their attack, takes the two Silvas out of the team. Bernardo Silva, I think, being the, the really important one to take out of the team. And they lose again. Um, <laughs> you can go here to what Guardiola said after the match. We worked three days on this. We discussed it and reviewed it. The way we played was really good. It was not a problem. I know how it works. I know why we did it. And then you can go to what Kevin De Bruyne said 
after the match. It's a different year, same stuff. I think Kevin De Bruyne's analysis is far more um, accurate post-match, post yet another knockout defeat than Pep Guardiola's here. I thought De Bruyne's words were um, economic, but incredibly cutting and damning uh, with that different year, same story uh, remark. Uh, Because as I said in, in the introduction to this discussion, Duncan, if you know football players, you know that if you start changing things ahead of one of the biggest games of their careers or one of the biggest games of their season and you work on it for three days, even if you work on it for three days, and then you find out that the two Silvas are not going to start, Riyad Mahrez is not going to start, and you are De Bruyne and Gundahan, etc., and you're thinking, OK, yeah, we've got talent up front, obviously, uh, with Sterling Jesus. But what we don't have is a player to come short towards us uh, from uh, when we are in midfield and link play between the middle and final third of the pitch. And of, of course, as I said, a game breaker. Game breakers, even against Lyon, are absolutely crucial because they are the ones which will give you that little moment of magic, the moment of unpredictability which is going to allow you to make the goal opportunity, which, of course, breaks a deadlock, gets you in front. And people can say, oh, they were unlucky because Sterling should have scored from five metres, et cetera, et cetera. Well, that's not the point. The point is that if you change things so radically when it doesn't need to be changed, then not only are you playing with your team's ability to win a football match, you're playing with their minds. Because they're now thinking, oh, okay, uh, not sure about this, but okay, you know, he's a gaffer, he's won two Champions Leagues. Uh, but then you've also got a group of players who have gone out, as we said, before the, the semi-final stages in all four of Guardiola's seasons. So they might have been thinking going out to the pitch on Saturday evening, here we go again. But he's done that again. He's changed the tactics, like he did with Liverpool, like he did against Spurs. And it's, as I said, he's overcomplicating it. Now, recruitment's already begun. So Nathan Aki has been recruited, but as you've said on the pod, a second choice centre-back. We believe that Koulibaly um, is their priority signing from Napoli. Uh, they've also signed Ferran Torres as a replacement per se uh, for um, Leroy Zani, who's gone to Bayern Munich. If there's a rebuild to be had, is there, what other positions, Duncan, do you believe that City needs to strengthen? Not just to look at the Champions League and think we do have a chance of winning it, but actually catching Liverpool, who were so far ahead of City, they could barely see them in terms of the Premier League last season. I think, um, well, they want to strengthen at left back. Obviously, they want that high quality centre back. Um, you mentioned Khalidou Koulibaly. Also, interest Ruben Gias asked about Jose Jimenez at Atletico and were quoted a, a very high release clause uh, price for him. Um, Diego Carlos, who we saw um, for Sevilla against Manchester United um, in the Europa League. Semi-final um, is another option in that position. Uh, they need to strengthen in midfield. They would. There is a possibility that they will go for a forward 
um, striker if they can find the right um, player to come in there. Um, a lot of money is going to be spent. We, we talked in the podcast that once they won at CAS um, on a majority decision, essentially uh, freed them from FFP and they are now able to throw money at the problem again. Um, you have to say that Guardiola has massively underperformed in the Champions League. Massively underperformed. He's not even got close to winning it. Next year, it will be a decade since he last won that trophy. He had big failures at Bayern Munich, again, making major tactical mistakes in important games that, that cost that, that team the opportunity to get to the final. Um, with City, it's it's round of 16 and three-quarter finals. I mean, that's to not even get to a final with the most expensive squad in the history of the game is huge underperformance. And I think it's only because of his the quality of football, the plaudits he receives for that quality of football in the English game, the way they've dominated um, a couple of seasons in in England, um, that that leaves him without question marks about whether he's the right man for the job, um, at least from Abu Dhabi and uh, from the majority of uh, those assessing his performances, because it is failure on his part not to do to do better there. And there is a, a real pattern in that failure. Um, you can't write it off to bad luck because a lot of it's being caused by the manager weakening what was something very strong, which he's built. You know, he, he built that way of playing. He developed, uh, improved the players, gave them the confidence in playing that style. But as you say, when he gets to the big games, the one who doesn't have the confidence in them playing that style is the one who taught them to play it. Um, and and it's a, it is a major problem for him. And anyone who reads, um, you know, the, the kind of detailed studies of the way Pep Guardiola is as a manager, as an individual, will see that the psychological element is is a bit of a weak point for him. He does doubt himself. He does question himself. And um, and he has to get over that to achieve what is expected of him as Manchester City manager, which is to deliver a Champions League trophy to Abu Dhabi for the first time. Well, as a famous Manchester uh, man once wrote, oh, Manchester, so much to answer for. Uh, indeed, Manchester United also flopped in their semi-final against Sevilla. Albeit Sevilla are some somewhat of the Europa League specialists, Duncan, um, given their recent history of winning the competition. Although, of course, United themselves won it under Jose Mourinho in his first season. Something which a lot of people are quite happy to overlook, it seems to be the case, um, including former teammates of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Now, Again, it was it was a disappointing way to go. Um, I think people were expecting United to, to be too strong for Sevilla. Where did it go wrong? And do we think how much culpability does Solskjaer have for the fact that they're not in the final? Well, 
there were bad errors, bad, bad defensive errors by Manchester United. I mean, they had a, a dream start in the game, a uh, 22nd penalty of the season. Um, interesting penalty in that uh, you don't often see penalties given when a when a defender has gone in for a tackle and and the striker gets his shot off clear at goal and is then fouled by a defender typically in that situation a referee will say well you had the chance to score um i ignore the foul uh, from the the challenge that that uh, failed to make the block but i don't think we're surprised that manchester united get another penalty in i think it's no traditional duncan it's traditional now. <laughs> Get penalties. <laughs> it's just accepted. So set up for them. Uh, goal up uh, against a team that they were, most people were confident they were going to beat, maybe overconfident they were going to beat, but United with their pace on the counter-attack and early goals, perfect situation. All you really need to do then is defend solidly and wait to take your second goal on the counter and, and that's the tie. But as we saw, once again, uh, I, I lose count of how many times it's happened this season. Harry Maguire out of position um, at a key moment. Other defensive errors in there, obviously, um, from Brandon Williams, from Lindelof, from Aaron Wan-Bissaka. All of them made errors in that move. But again, you see um, Maguire being caught in no man's land, neither marking his striker or going to where he should have gone to narrow down the options for the cross from Regulon so he could block uh, and intercept that cross at source, the standard thing you'd expect the centre-back to do in that situation. Cost them a goal. Second um, goal they concede. Again, Maguire out of position. Again, errors from Brandon Williams um, and other defenders. Um, so you have Wambasaka and Lindelof in the middle, um, neither of whom get close to De Jong, who scores, who's not the most mobile centre forward in the world, it has to be said. So Harry Maguire was the player that Uli Gunnar Solskjaer decided to put the majority of his summer transfer budget into. He decided to put the majority of his budget, additional budget, into the defence. So you have a world record transfer fee and a massive salary for Maguire, and you have what was a, a record transfer fee for a specialist fullback at that at the time they did the deal for Juan Pesaka. You get to the end of the season and in the key game where they have a chance to win European trophy, the defence is responsible for them getting knocked out. So some of the responsibility has to go with Solskjaer for that over um, the player he decided to, to make that record defensive signing. And, uh, and the way the defence operates because there are bad decisions being made and that's down to organisational training matters. You can't lay all of the blame there on the individuals uh, in, in that given situation. The other thing I think you can criticise is he comes out after the match and he talks about how tired his team was. Um, he says, you see how tired they were towards the end, tired legs, tired minds. Um, this was a Europa League semi-final where he had the opportunity to make five substitutions because of the, the rules that are in place for the competition. The, he uses his first substitute, um, where well, he made a treble substitution, but he doesn't make a change until 87 minutes. So if you think your team is tired, they have tired legs and they have tired minds, you would think you'd make some changes 
earlier in the second half to get rid of those tired legs and bring fresh legs and fresh minds on, but apparently not. Now, I've heard the argument that's because he has such a shallow squad and he has no trust in his bench that he had to do that. He didn't have anyone to bring off the, the bench to, to make um, the difference for him. Well, on the bench, he had his other summer signing, um, Daniel James, who they spent a considerable amount of money on bringing to the club, um, who I think most people would say has declined in performances over the course of the season. Had a fantastic start and was being hailed as a, as a you know, as a genius signing by Manchester United, but has really deteriorated over the course of the season. So, again, that's a Solskjaer signing and a player he's had a year to handle and who has, at least for this season, gone into decline to the point where Solskjaer himself doesn't trust him to come off the bench when he's chasing a result in the last opportunity to win a trophy in the season until the 87th minute. The other player, another Solskjaer signing, Odin Agallo, who he didn't trust to come on until the 87th minute, who was signed as a centre-forward in the January window. Um, again, with a lot of Solskjaer involvement in the process, um, who has gone through, well, now seven months at the club and not scored a Premier League goal. So... Again, I think there has to be a degree of responsibility there at the feet of the manager. Um, you're now in a situation where Manchester United have not won a trophy for three consecutive seasons for the first time in 31 years. Um, and look, I think they will improve next season. I think it's easy to see that they will, they will not have as bad a set of performances and outcome 66 points, which is their second lowest Premier League points total ever next season because they now have Bruno Fernandes in the squad. And there has been progress over the course of the season, obvious progress. They are a much uh, more coherent attacking force now. But they're far from the finished article. Um, they are still well off from a points perspective the 81 points in second place they achieved in the season before Solskjaer came in. Um, Solskjaer's first season, uh, the part of it he was in charge of, which was a majority of it, 66 points, 66 points again this season. Um, is it good enough? Could you do better with a superior manager who doesn't make decisions like going into a um, Europa League semi-final where he thinks his, his players are, are have tired legs and tired minds, where you know you're playing against a, a very competent Spanish team who will be positionally clever, and you decide to leave Nemanja Matic on the bench, who is clearly your best holding midfielder, statistically and from a qualitative point of view, improves the output of the defence. They're a much solider team with him in. So you leave him aside. Um, I think they can do better with a, with a different manager, with a, with a, with a guy who's, who's, who trains them in a different way and doesn't cause as many injuries with his training regime, who makes better in-game decisions. Um, I expect what we'll hear from Solskjaer going into the next season is a lot of stuff about how they have to become more robust and stronger 
So he'll play the card of they have to be fitter, they have to work harder, um, which is exactly the same card as he played before last season. Um, and we saw what happened. Uh, were they stronger? Were they fitter? Were they more robust with his uh, training regime put in place? Did that reduce the number of injuries across the season? Did it uh, prevent key players from uh, missing games because of muscular injuries for long periods? Um, was his reluctance to rotate, um, particularly in the second half of the season, a successful policy in the end? Uh, when it came to winning trophies, I th I think they need. It's obvious to me that they could be a stronger force with a higher quality manager in charge, um, and I think that semi final showed some of Solskjaer's errors, um, both pre season in terms of the players he bought, and during the season in terms of the way he um, handles them showed them up and that's why they are without a trophy for a third consecutive season. It's, uh, it must be, I mean, I say it's concerning, Duncan, but it appears to me that one of Solskjaer's best tricks is hoodwinking people into thinking they're doing better than they actually are. Um, I mean, I've got to just lose a look at um, our timeline on the at Transfer podcast on Twitter, um, the replies that you and I both get to um, tweets uh, a lot of United fans complaining that we're being unfair on Harry Maguire um, uh, and also um, Solskjaer, etc., etc. And yet, it's just, as I said, it's almost like United have slipped into this rather sleepy malaise of, oh, well, our standards, which we had for years and years and years, um, they don't apply anymore. You know, Manchester United are not a team that win trophies every season. Manchester is not a team that automatically makes the, the Champions League every season. Manchester is not a club challenging for the Champions League. When those are questions that would not even get the light of day, uh, you know, six, seven years ago. And it's, it's just, it does surprise me quite a lot how United fans are not more demanding uh, it's almost like they've become so uh, used to disappointment and failure that any little sign of, oh, look, it's getting better. I, Bruno Fernandes has scored seven goals, I think, from penalties. Uh, one from open play, I think, um, etc. These are things that we should be grateful for. This is, we should be grateful that we, we, we made third in the Premier League and therefore we're playing Champions League next season. We should be grateful we made three semi-finals. Um, uh, even though we didn't win any of them. You know, it just seems very odd um, in terms of the culture at Manchester United. I, and, okay, no, I, I don't, I'm not someone who's revisionist and wants to go back to Sir Alex Ferguson's days all of the time because that, there's, no, there's no sense in that. But at the same time, you could never see it happening under Ferguson. He would never have allowed it to, go, to get to this point. Because he would have radically cleared out that squad, um, taken the deadwood out and replaced it with better players and made them play better as a team, as a result. So if people are, or even Solskjaer himself, believes that his squad is thin, we don't expect him to spend a huge amount of money. Obviously, the Jadon Sancho deal would cost them most of their budget and we know they're still pursuing that and still hope to get that done. 
But looks to me like they need left back, need centre back, they need central midfield, probably needs goal scorer as well. Because although Martial uh, is an impressive footballer, he's not an instinctive number nine. He's not you kind of predator type, goal scoring type. He scores spectacular goals, yes, but. You know, I know this sounds weird, but it doesn't get a lot of, ta- of tap-ins. You know, he's not the man arriving in the six-yard box at the right time to hit the front post or the back post and collect that killer cross. So, I, I mean, without radical changes, I don't really see how United are going to get any better next season. Look, I don't think those those questions would have seen the light of day two years ago. That, that's how radically the, the image around Manchester United has changed, where this is perceived as a successful season to, to finish third um, in the Premier League, 33 points behind the uh, team, <laughs> the, the great li- rivals in Liverpool who, who win the title for the first time in, in 30 years, closer to the relegation zone. Um, than they were to the, the top of the table. But that is the perception. And look, Solskjaer has been helped, ironically, by how bad he was in the second half of his first season at Manchester United and how bad he was in the, the first half of, of this season. So this is the, historically, one of their worst ever starts uh, to a league campaign, their worst ever start to a Premier League campaign. So then the revival post-COVID, um, a rush of results, um, very good results and some really entertaining um, attacking football to watch. Looks fantastic because the contrast to what was a very dark scenario and you know historical underperformance for, for a modern Manchester United side looks good. The club has sold this story of cultural reboot. Uh, he needs multiple windows. You have a, a host of Solskjaer's friends in the media, ex-teammates, who I think I'm still correct in saying are yet to criticise a single thing he's done as Manchester United manager. 20 months into the job with a host of obvious errors, but nothing, nothing gets criticised by them. Um, They come out of uh, games like the semi-final and start talking about how he needs to spend hundreds of millions, the clubs need to spend hundreds of millions on a a goal scorer to solve the problems of what the same people had been telling us a few weeks ago was a brilliant attack and that Solskjaer had built a great Man Man United way attack again. But they lose one game and it's back to um, the Glazers have to solve the problem for him by spending lots of money. We hear time after time that he has to have four, five, six windows before he can be judged. Which other manager of any top club in European football gets four or five, six windows before he gets judged on his performances? It's it's unheard of, but that is the the story that has been sold and accepted by some around Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and Manchester United. And I understand why the, 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 a lot of the support are supportive of him. He was a Manchester United hero and legend. He's a very likeable individual. They're desperate to see the team succeed. They're desperate to see them play attacking football. He has finally provided attacking football right at the end of his reign. You, you, you have to say that what he provided for, for most of the season was um, sitting in a low block and playing on the counter-attack. That was the only time they were succeeding. They were not 
quite often playing with a five-man defence um, at Old Trafford. Um, things that would have been anathema to Alex Ferguson and, and to the teams that he played in. Um, but they want to see him do well. There, there is a, a, a groundswell around him to do well, and they've suffered hard times, ironically, under him. Um, and they want to see that turned around. So I, I can understand the, the enthusiasm, but taking it dispassionately away and looking at what he has done as a manager of Manchester United and the decisions he has made, um, his in-game management and the results he's delivered, you, I, I don't see how anyone can argue that he is the best man for the job. That, that there isn't a, a manager who has um, a proven track record at this level who could do a better job than Solskjaer has done and can do a better job going forward. I think that's it, it's obvious that that's the case. He is, of course, hampered by the Glazers. And he, he is, you know, as every Manchester United manager has been, he's hampered by Ed Woodward and he's hampered by the structure of the club. Um, and... I think the whole cultural reboot story is just another example of that. Um, and I, I don't think should really accept the idea that it takes three years to get them back to the top of the game um, and that it should be acceptable to be this far off the, the clubs who are at the top of the English game at present, never mind the, the clubs who are at the top of the European game, which you know, Manchester United haven't even been playing in for the last season. Um, they should be able to get there quicker. Uh, they should be competitive. Um, and the, the, there's now an acceptance that this will take a long period of time um, because the club and Solskjaer have sold them a story that that should be the case. Well, we're used to, um, Duncan, generally speaking, uh, the big money uh, being asked for and paid for strikers and attacking players. But this summer appears uh, to be a huge inflation in the price for centre-backs uh, and defenders. Um, obviously, there are a few cases here, especially, and interestingly, in young English talent, which, of course, means you can auto automatically add 25% to what the price might usually be for someone else. Uh, I'm talking about the likes of uh, ben Chilwell, Leicester City, who have quoted in excess of £70 million to Chelsea. Uh, also, uh, West Ham have done the same over Declan Rice in Chelsea's pursuit of him. Um, even at Brighton, uh, a third bid in excess of £30 million has been rejected for Ben White, who has yet to play in the Premier League, having just completed a successful season on loan at Leeds United. And even Lewis Dunk is being mentioned in the 40 to 50 million pounds price range. Uh, the Brighton captain, who uh, regularly attracts, it has to be said, interest from uh, a lot of clubs, but has been a one man in terms of his club career so far. It seems being young, uh, gifted English is not necessarily an advantage, Duncan. Is it just about the nationality or is it just the, because, let's face it, we. None of us were expecting um, a, a really, a, a still an active market, but not a market where prices would remain as inflated as they have been over the last three years. Yeah, I, look, I think Ben White's a fascinating case in point here because a 22-year-old who's not played a single game in the Premier League, um, not played a first-team 
competitive game for his for his parent club Brighton. But he has um, Liverpool, Chelsea um, interested in other top English clubs looking at him. Leeds United, I believe, have made three bids already, having had him on loan for a season um, in which he was their only ever present, played every single minute of their, their championship winning campaign. They made three bids so far, had them all rejected by Brighton. Um, first one, understand was 18.5 million, second one 23 million, and then they've now come back with an initial 30 million pound bid. Um, and uh, one of the players on the list that Frank Lampard would look at um, to strengthen a defence that needs badly needs strengthening, um, because he's struggling to get Declan Rice out of West Ham United, with West Ham asking over 70 million for him. Um, and I, I understand the figure that Brighton would be looking at um, to sell him is £55 million or more, which, as you say, is a remarkable fee for, for a player who, who has zero Premier League experience. But there is the, the idea here that he is, has 10 years in front of him. Um, there's a you know, distinct possibility he'll be called up for an England cap before long, which will add... Um, a significant amount to his value. If he starts playing regularly for England, it goes up again. Um, and Brighton are a club that are able to hold on uh, financially to their players and and wait um, for the right moment um, to sell a player if, if they feel it's in their interest to do so. So the calculation seems to be here. Give the player a new contract, um, put them in the first team, uh, let him perform to expectations and the value will go up to the kind of level we are we are quoting um, to these top clubs to buy him now. And then we get the benefit of having him in our team for a year uh, or more. Um, but yeah, you're right. It's uh, it, it, it clearly clubs like Chelsea expected to be pick, to be able to pick off talents like Declan Rice in this window because of COVID. Um, but clubs like West Ham United and Brighton are resisting. Uh, Leicester City, I, I don't think it's such a great surprise that they're resisting because they are financially very sound. Um, and they're saying, well, we, we don't let them go for cheap prices, regardless of what the, the economic climate is around us at present. It is indeed a strange old market, um, especially for, say, young English talent. Of course, Jaden Sancho, who is not a defender, we'd also like to point out, but is uh, also at Borussia Dortmund and United still to um, find a structured fee, a structure of paying a fee of around 110 million euros that would get him out of Dortmund and to Old Trafford. With Dortmund being increasingly adamant that they're not going to sell the player, I mean, we, we have a, they had a financial... Uh, results announced this week of an almost 45 million euro loss and we have the chief executive Hans-Joachim Wotzka giving interviews um, saying that uh, Sancho staying at BVB is set in stone and uh, and for a Westphalian which is the area of, of Germany they come from definite means definite Jaden will play with us for the 2020-21 season there is no room for interpretation I have to say, it seems a bit harsh to set him in stone just to keep him there. I mean, you know, how's he going to play football? Of course, it is the uh, week when Premier League clubs return to 
pre-season training, all that running up and down sand dunes, etc., etc., to get your fitness right, or indeed, as Rui Faria always said, why if I had a uh, maestro pianist, would I get him to run around the piano to warm up? Uh, however, that is the way of things. Um, many of you, like us, will have seen pictures of our uh, finest stars of the Premier League holidaying, partying, etc., etc. Some of them in places where mm, the government say you're supposed to quarantine for two weeks before you can even get out your house. Now, Duncan, <laughs> I'm very confused because as far as I know, there are no exceptions for professional footballs or indeed any professional athletes with regards to self-isolation. So should you return from a COVID hotspot? And here we have the situation where, as I said, accepting uh, Manchester City, United and Wolves, who also were competing in Europa League and Champions League games, uh, they, they will begin on September the 12th in terms of the restart of the Premier League. And so, uh, as far as I know, all 17 other clubs all return to pre-season training this week. Uh, some have already returned yesterday or uh, indeed Tuesday, today of this week. Um, what does this mean for... Because I, I think anyone who's been taking notice of how COVID has managed to be contained in sport, i.e. how we've managed to get sport, professional sport, back on, um, especially uh, international cricket, where biosecure bubbles have been um, constructed to ensure all the players are uh, in a situation where they're safe and obviously tested every two days. Also, uh, we've had the tournaments ongoing in Germany and in uh Portugal with regards to champions in Europa League, where again, no recorded cases. And yet here we've got effectively, um, well, non-restricted travel to COVID hotspots, returning back. Of course, they'll be tested when they get back. But is there any way that we can, you know, put, go back to what the, the scenario was like before uh, the resumption of the Premier League, where everyone... Uh, effectively was forced into training and a coronavirus-protected bubble before going back onto the field of play? I think it's it's definitely a risk point for the Premier League here. We saw prior to um, the Champions League finals in Portugal, uh, COVID cases at Atletico Madrid when they when they were tested ahead of the tournament and uh, COVID case at Paris Saint-Germain. Um, it stands to reason if you take the players out of the regime they were in um, during Project Restart, which was training um, by or twice a week being tested for COVID, um, the majority of them coming up negative and you, you saw that the players felt they were, they were in a secure situation. They could return to um, embracing each other and handshakes. Um, you know, there, there was very little adherence to what we expected the, the COVID um, rules of play to be because the, the players felt they were safe. But once you take them out of that testing regime and allow them to go on holiday, um, as you said, a lot of them going on to places that have had second waves of COVID and 
um, countries which um, the government has now said you, if you come back from those countries, you have to quarantine for two weeks um, when doing so. It stands to reason that some of the players will be infected during that period. And it would not surprise me if we see a rash of positive COVID tests from one or more clubs um, when they bring them back into training and they start going into that um, uh, twice a week testing regime again. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how it how it's handled if that is the case and if we have multiple clubs who have that issue because we are, as you say, just three and a half weeks away from the restart of the Premier League. If players, multiple players test positive for COVID, then they could end up missing two weeks of, of the very abbreviated pre-season training period they have before the start of the Premier League season. Could uh, result in some significant competitive disadvantage for, for certain clubs and problems for the Premier League to solve. Let's hope it doesn't happen, um, but it won't surprise me if it does happen. Yeah, potential problem there. The phrase back to square one comes to mind. Um, however, let's hope that's not the case, given the amount of uh, disruption we've already had this year to the football calendar. It is your first Transfer Window podcast of the week, which of course means here when villain time. And uh, I am going to hand it over to Duncan to reveal his villain of the last few days in football. Duncan. I think, uh, I think the villain of, of this past week, um, I think the award has to go to one of um, Uli Gunnar Solskjaer's um, best mates in the, in the media studios, um, Paul Scholes, who at the start of the Europa League um, finals told us that Manchester United uh, should be clear winners of the tournament because they were obviously better than um, all the other teams that were left in it. Um, and that they had uh, such a good attack now that um, you couldn't see beyond them winning the competition. Then we watched them go out to Sevilla, um, a club you would think you might have noticed had a, had a reasonable record in the Europa League over the, the past few seasons and, uh, and a reasonable record uh, in recent months in Spain. Uh, and his uh, analysis of, of what went wrong was that um, Manchester United need to spend more money on the attack. Uh, their, their attackers and their goal scorers weren't good enough. He said, you talk about quality, you talk about spending money on centre forwards and wide players, and you talk about hundreds of millions to get these players these days. But these are the players that win you trophies. These are the ones that win you medals. If you want to win trophies, they've got to start spending the money. Um, so once again, no criticism of, uh, of, his, of his pal Oli. Um, and once again, a complete contradiction as to what he said just a, a few days earlier, that the attack was great and they'd win. Actually, they lose and they have to spend hundreds of millions to, to get Solskjaer to the top. I'm beginning to wonder if it was Scolzi in the Stratford End shouting, attack, attack, attack. <laughs> <laughs> All those times <laughs> shooting the, the Louis Van Hal era, the golden days of Van Hal <laughs> and his red and white army. <laughs> Well, uh, he, he certainly wouldn't have been singing it in, uh, in duet with Paul Pogba, would he? No, indeed, indeed. Uh, well, I'm going to choose my hero of the last few days. It's a very simple one, uh, no need for huge amounts of explanations. But uh, Kylian Mbappe, after PSG 
uh, made it to the semi-finals of the Champions League, responding to the criticism of some, let's just say, rather harsh critics and, and ones who not necessarily sympathetic to League Anne. He simply tweeted, in in capital letters, Farmers League, with three laughing emojis next to it. Uh, nice one, Killian. Good to see a young international footballer with a sense of humour and irony. That's it for today's Transfer Window podcast. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed listening to it, as we have enjoyed bringing it to you. Uh, if you want to continue the debate, which you know that we are always up for doing, then please, uh, you'll find us on our social media channels. That is Twitter, at Transfer Podcast, the same on Instagram and on Facebook. You also find Duncan's personal account at Duncan Castle. I'm sure most of you know where that is already. And mine is at Garbo SJ. Also, uh, as well as being available on all, of course, your favourite podcast platforms, the Transfer Window podcast is now available on our own YouTube channel. At, just search at Transfer Window Podcast. You'll find it in seconds, I assure you. Um, if you did like it and you want to hear more and you want to expand the community, just give us something back. Log on to iTunes, give us a five-star review. Everyone's happy, I can assure you. Until then, uh, later in the week, I just left me to say, stay safe, be well, especially if you're a returning Premier League footballer. And thanks for listening. (laughs) 